If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. We're continuing in our series, Carols for Every Season. Uh, We started this a couple weeks ago, talking about these Christmas songs that many of us sing every year, or you hear them walking through the mall, or you hear them on the radio, and yet we don't often uh, think about sometimes the words and what they mean. They can be confusing. Especially to kids, sometimes Christmas song words can be confusing. They certainly understand Jingle Bells and Frosty the Snowman. But some of the deeper, more theological ones, they can miss the meaning. My, uh, my daughter singing uh, last week, uh, well, Star of Wonder, Star of Bright, uh, Westford Leading. Um, not Westward Leading, but Westford Leading. So I don't know what that means, but those of you that are from Westford, I pray that you lead well. Um, But these songs can be confusing. The one we're looking at this morning, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, has confused kids for years because kids for centuries have literally wondered who Harold the Angel is and why is he singing. Many kids will be, they know Michael, they know Gabriel, and they know Harold the Angel. Um, that's, that's, that, it's confusing to kids for many years. And we're going to look at that one this morning. It's an important uh, song. It's a beautiful hymn full of uh, rich meaning that we're going to touch on today. But let me start with an observation as we get into this this morning. And this is the observation that I want to make as we, as we start and as we get into this today. And that's this. I don't know if this is true about you. I know it's true about me, and I think it's true about most people, that as a general rule, people don't like being told what to do. How many would agree with that statement? That people generally don't like being told what to do. Every parent ought to have their hand in the air or anyone who's worked with kids. People generally don't like being told what to do. Especially kids, right? You you look at kids and they don't like being told to do by anybody. They certainly don't like being told to do by their friends, or, or anyone like that's their age. And sometimes what you'll hear, you'll hear different statements, but one that I've heard a lot, and maybe you heard, is this, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> right? Have you ever heard that one? You're not the boss of me. And then sometimes I guess it's true when it's their friends, but then they say it like to their parents, right? I don't know if you're a parent and you've ever heard a kid say, you're not the boss of me. And I'm like, I am the boss of you. First of all, let's get that straight. But none of us like being told what to do. But it's not just kids. I wish it stopped at kids, but it doesn't stop at kids, right? Because those of us that are adults, sometimes we don't like being told what to do. It comes sometimes maybe from a coworker, someone on the org chart who's not really over you, but kind of maybe on the same level as you on the org chart, or maybe even a level below you on that company org chart. And they send you an email, and they're like, hey, can you take care of this? And you're like, you're not my boss, <laughs> Right? And you're like, no, you do it. Why are you asking me to do it? And there's this thing within us that doesn't like being told what to do. It's not just kids and adults, though. I think it's the human nature in general. And and maybe if we look at our country in particular, and maybe our part of the country in particular, we maybe live in a country that recognizes that sometimes we don't like to be told what to do by other people. Let me give you an example. Some of you may have heard that this past week on Wednesday night, there was a mob in Boston of about 3,000 people. 3,000 people. Yeah, you didn't hear about this? 3,000 people gathered in Boston. 
mob of people, they gathered at this building. They had a, a vehement, heated debate that went on. And then they stormed out of the building. There was noise and there was music. And they marched, these 3,000 people, down to the waterfront. And then some of them boarded ships and dumped tea overboard. Sound familiar? It was this past Wednesday night, December 16th, was the 242nd reenactment of the Boston, well, 242nd anniversary, the annual reenactment of the Boston Tea Party uh, took place uh, December 16th, 1773, led by Samuel Adams and his band of about 100 Sons of Liberty who were uh, protesting against King George and the parliament of the time that had enacted these taxes, uh, not just uh, certainly the tea tax that they were already paying, but then the Townsend Acts that uh, forced them to buy tea only from the British East India Company. Uh, And incidentally, this year, they actually dumped tea from the British East India Company overboard. Another company has kind of revived that name, so that was kind of a connection this year. Um, And this year, it was a festive occasion, of course, and those 3,000 people were happy and singing to drums and, and everything else. But 242 years ago, it wasn't so festive. 90,000 pounds of, you know, His Majesty's or Her Majesty's tea was dumped overboard, and this did not make the king happy, uh, nor Parliament. And 16 months later, you know, next town over, the shot fired that's heard around the world, and the American Revolution begins. And there's something within maybe the DNA of our country, maybe the DNA of our area, that, that understands a little bit of this revolutionary mindset that we don't like being told what to do. Even if the king is across an ocean, we don't like the king telling us to pay taxes, and we don't like the king telling us we have to buy a certain brand of tea. So we, so we put up plaques, and, and we uh, have uh, trails that mark, the, the, called the Freedom Trail. We build museums to recognize this aspect and remind us of, of this, this part of our history. And if you click a couple more slides, you'll see another shot of the Boston Tea Party Museum and another shot of some people who act and are part of the Boston Tea Party Museum. If you look closely, you might recognize a Mount Hope member in that picture, but I'm not going to give it away. Um, helping remember this aspect of our history. And this aspect, so there's this aspect within us that constantly is reminded that this, I think, country was formed in breaking out from under tyranny, uh, breaking out from under this rule of, uh, of, this, of this king, and this idea that, hey, we don't like to be told what to do by someone who lives across the ocean. We want to be governed by consent of the people rather than by a king. Truth is, we like to be an authority. And we really don't like it when other people tell us what to do. Our country began that way. Many of us live that way. But this morning, I want to consider the question of authority and ask you, maybe there's times when instead of throwing off authority, other times we need to embrace authority in our lives. We're going to see this morning and take a look, if you're in Matthew chapter 2, at an ancient ruler 
who, like us, did not like to have his authority questioned at all. But we're going to ask the question this morning and examine the question, are there times when we would be wise to give up authority and to recognize authority in our lives? Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 18 this morning. And, uh, and here is what the Word of God says. Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is a wonderful and at the same time tragic and a bit terrifying of a passage of Scripture. We think about the Christmas narrative. Maybe this is one of the ones and one of the parts of it we don't spend a lot of time thinking and meditating on, this infanticide, this murderous king of killing all these baby boys, but it's, a, it's part of the story. And the question that comes up is, why is a king on a throne so afraid of a baby in a manger? Why is this, this great and powerful man 
of, in such fear of a baby that he would command such an atrocious act? Well, to understand the answer to that question, you have to understand a little bit about who Herod the Great was. Herod the Great, if you look back at history, he was known for two things. One, he was known for great building programs throughout Jerusalem and the area where he served. He, he built a temple. He built palaces. He built uh, a lot of hideaways where he could hide from people. Uh, he had wonderful and elaborate building projects that went on, and he is known for that. But he's also known for something else, and that is being extremely paranoid and terrified that someone was going to try and take his throne. And so he often built these elaborate places to hide from people in case they came to attack. And he was so paranoid about losing his throne that he would go to all kinds of ends to try and preserve it. Killing people was, was not even a second thought. He would certainly do that. Some of the historians say he killed a bunch of rabbis once that he didn't agree with and causing him problems. But probably the most uh, interesting one that can let you know how ruthless he was is that he heard two of his own sons at one point were seeking to commit mutiny and usurp him. So when they were traveling, he had them strangled and killed two of his own sons so that they would not take his throne. Uh, at one point, the emperor of Rome said it might be better to be a pig of Herod than his own son. He was so cruel and ruthless and mean. He was suspicious of everybody. And so here you have this paranoid king sitting on the throne, and then you have these magi that come, uh, dignitaries, some kinds of heads of state of a foreign nation, certainly influential and powerful and rich and wealthy people. And they come into the city of Jerusalem where Herod is because if there's going to be a king of the Jews, he would, they thought, be in Jerusalem, the place of power and seat of the Jewish nation. And so they go to Jerusalem and they ask, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Now Herod gets wind of this, and for him there's two problems with that statement, two very big problems. One is king of the Jews is his title. And if anyone else is being called king of the Jews, there's going to be a problem because Herod was known as the king of the Jews. And so if anyone else was going to try and take that on, Herod was going to have a problem with them. And it says Herod and all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Disturbed is kind of a mild word. Um, terrified. Um, you know, the stronger emotive words are probably more appropriate. But it says all of Jerusalem's disturbed. Well, why? Because if Herod's upset, you better, be, you better be upset too or someone's going to die. Probably someone is going to die who is close to him. So of course you're going to be nervous. Of course you're going to be upset because Herod is upset and someone's probably going to die because someone else is being called king of the Jews. But the second problem with the statement they have is they said, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Now that's a problem for Herod because Herod wasn't born king of the Jews. Herod was made king of the Jews. He was, he was put in that place by the emperor. So if there's someone who is actually rightfully born heir to the throne, Herod's got a problem. 
because he doesn't have that lineage. And so if someone is called born king of the Jews, he's going to be upset and he's going to do something about it because he obtained his throne through intimidation and force and he's afraid someone else will do the same thing to him. So the striking part is here's this powerful king who's done all this building, who's got all these people at his command, who's got armies who will obey his every word. I mean, imagine this. He's got guys under his command that will obey him when he says, go kill innocent children. I mean, what kind of power are you wielding? What kind of fear are people living in that they will go and kill innocent children when you tell them to? So here's this incredibly powerful man, and yet he is afraid of the nativity scene. I mean, these scenes that we look at at Christmas, this, you have them maybe in your house or maybe on a common of your town or someplace. You have these scenes of this angelic, this, this scene of the, 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 with the animals and Mary and Joseph and the hay and the manger, and, and, and it's very sanitized, much more sanitized than it probably was. Um, and, but then this little baby lying in the manger, and maybe you've got a light shining on it, and there's an angel over it singing, and these beautiful scenes. And how could this ruthless, powerful king be afraid of the nativity scene, be afraid of the little baby in the manger? It seems odd that Herod be, would be so threatened by baby Jesus, the baby Jesus that many of us think of. We like the story. We like the season. We enjoy thinking about the baby in the manger. But maybe sometimes Herod realizes something that we forget. See, the truth is we love children. We love babies. I mean, I'm not going to speak for everybody. But as a whole, most people love children. They love kids, right? Um, As an example of this... uh, I heard of a, a filmmaker recently. His name's Alan, uh, Alan Berliner. And he made a film called Family Album. And, and here's what he did. He went around to garage sales, thrift shops, yard sales, and he collected family movies of Americans. And, you know, not his, obviously. He collected thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of Americans' family movies. And he watched them. And he watched them and he made this film called Family Album. And he learned some things about us, as you can imagine, right? He started to draw some conclusions. He started to draw some things that they had in common. And so an interview recently that I heard with him said, you know, what did you learn? What did you learn about us? He said, well, one of the things I learned is that we love the beach. He said, if an alien life form came from outer space and just studied our home movies, they would think Americans' lives consist of a life of leisure at the beach, usually just around water someplace, a pool, a beach, and that most of their lives are spent there. But he said he also learned something else. He said he learned that 60 to 70% of all the movies that he collected contained images of children. He said, I would say that up to about the age of 12 or so, that's what these videos were, contained images of children up to about the age 12. 
And here's the interesting thing. He said, every single one of these family videos that I collected, the, the vast majority of them, the vast majority of them, they have all these kids in there. And, let, and let's say, he says, you know, for, for argument's sake, let's say there was a, a little girl named Adrian. And you'd have this can of film, and it would be Adrian age one, Adrian age two, Adrian age three, Adrian age four. And then somewhere around age 12, no more Adrian. <laughs> Adrian just disappeared. And then Adrian shows up again when Adrian gets married. And so, so somewhere between 12 and whenever Adrian gets married, there's this gap of life that nobody wanted to take pictures of Adrian. But he says it wasn't just one family. It's not just Adrian. It's all these families he studied. Because people love taking pictures of kids. I mean, think about your, I'm not going to ask you to do it, but those of you who are parents, you go on your phone, your SD card right now. How many pictures of kids and how many pictures of your adult friends? Probably a lot more pictures sometimes of kids. I mean, if we don't think that's the case, I mean, just look at the photo company commercials and everything else. They're making a killing on these parents that want all these pictures and to save them and everything else. So we have this, we love children. And, and, but somewhere around the age of 12, all these, all these pictures disappeared. And why? Because somewhere around the age 12, you know what happens. Somewhere around the age of 12, they start not acting like children. And they start getting a little more of their own personality. I say they. We, right? We were all there, most of us, right? Those of you that are past 12. We start out getting our own little personality. Uh, we start asserting our own authority. We start not being as cute to take pictures of. And suddenly there aren't as many pictures of kids because we love children, but we aren't as crazy about people that try and start asserting their own authority and telling us what to do. And so we don't take as many pictures because we love kids. But here's the thing that Herod knew. And here's, 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 here's the point that I want to get at this morning. We love the baby in the manger. We love the newborn baby. But Herod knew he was more than that. And maybe what Herod knew that we sometimes miss is that he wasn't just a newborn baby. He was the newborn king. And there's a big difference between just a newborn baby and a newborn king. And so Charles Wesley writes his most famous hymn. Wesley wrote 6,500 hymns over the 50 years of his ministry. But his most famous by far, we sang this morning, Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. And as we studied and we thought about this hymn this week and, and leading up to this message, you know, the two words that jumped out at Pastor Brian and myself and other members of our, of our preaching team were newborn king. And what a contrast of words that is. Because we all know, you know, in, in a dynasty at times, there are newborn uh, people of royalty that are born, but they usually start out as princes or heirs to the throne in some way. But this is not. This is a newborn king, immediately king, enters the scene as king. And so Wesley can write uh, these, ver- these words as he goes on in the second verse to, to sing these words. Let's go to the second verse. Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead. 
Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And the next verse, the third verse that we also sang this morning. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more should die. What Wesley knew in these verses was that there's a temptation in all of us to come to Christmas time and to come to the manger and to come to the reminder of the incarnation and the beauty of all it is. There's a temptation for us to see Jesus simply as the newborn baby and forget that he's the newborn king, that he's entering the scene as king, that he's not entering the scene as just this helpless baby that we often think about, but he's entering the scene as king. And so Herod is threatened because maybe Herod realizes something that we sometimes forget, that a king has the right to tell us what to do, that a king is going to make demands on Herod, that a king will change the way that you live, that a king will change your life, that a king will rule over his kingdom. And so Herod knew this. Herod knew, hey, I don't want another king. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want a king. I'm not interested in that. But I'm afraid that maybe some of us come to Christmas time and we think we can come to the manger and sing, come let us adore him and look upon this scene of beauty and walk away and still live any way we'd like to live. But it's not just a newborn baby. It's the newborn king. It's Jesus Christ coming, incarnate in the world, dwelling among us. See, here's where we're like, Herod. We've all built our own kingdoms. And in the world that we live in, we are encouraged to build our own kingdoms. And I'm not just talking about houses and possessions, but then it's, it's managing your image in the world that we live in, right? It's this social network thing that we often have, that we are constantly trying to manage our own little kingdoms. The people we talk to or won't talk to, the people that communicate with us or won't. And when we make decisions, no one gets to tell us what to do, and if they do, we can just delete them, unfriend them, unfollow them, or block them, because it's our kingdom. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I just unfriend you. I'll block your post. I'll keep you off my wall. I'll do whatever I have to do. I don't want you disturbing my kingdom. And we've all built these little kingdoms where we try and protect ourselves, where we try and rule. And the thing is that Jesus is a threat to every individual kingdom because he's the newborn king. He's the king. There are a lot of people like Herod today They will not allow anyone or anything to interfere with their career, their lifestyle, or their plans. They see Jesus as a threat to all of that. They don't mind celebrating the birth of Jesus as long as he stays in the manger as a baby. They're okay with God as long as he stays out of their lives. Some of us want to pick and choose parts of Jesus we will accept and parts we'll reject. We take what we like and we ignore what we don't because it's our kingdom. Some get angry as Herod did and do whatever it takes to remove Jesus from their lives. 
Our reaction to this is similar to King Herod's reaction. We can take Jesus as long as he's a baby in a manger sometimes, but when he becomes king, we start to pay less attention to him or not give him his rightful place. In fact, some people may wonder, or maybe you're wondering, why should you allow him to be king? Why should you listen to him? Maybe you like your individual kingdom that you've built. Maybe you like being the one who sits on the throne in your life. But what we fail to realize is that our kingdoms and the empires that we build, family, career, material things, they all have one major flaw. They all have one major flaw. We build our little kingdoms, and some of them are big and some of them are small, but we all have the choice of reigning and ruling our little kingdom. But there's always one flaw. And let me explain it to you this way by sharing a story uh, by a famous uh, Russian author named Leo Tolstoy. Uh, Leo Tolstoy wrote a, wrote a lot of great uh, literature. Uh, one of my favorite stories by him is a short story. It's probably only about 10 pages or so. And it's called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And in this story, Tolstoy tells the uh, tale of a man named Palm. I'll call him Palm. I'm not sure if that's the right pronunciation of his name. But Palm, and he's a peasant. And Palm's a peasant and a farmer. He's a good farmer, able to provide for his family. And at the beginning of the story, he's got a small little piece of land, but he farms it and, and his own little kingdom, you might say. He farms it and provides for his family. But then one day, uh, his wife gets a visit from one of her relatives from the city. And she starts critiquing their country bumpkin life. And starts critiquing and talking about how life's so much better in the city. And you guys in the country don't really know what life is about. And, and, uh, and, and so Palm, he overhears the conversation. And he starts to think, well, maybe my life isn't all that it should be. He said, you know, you know maybe I do need a little bit more than I have right now. And so, so a landowner in the area, a, a woman, uh, dies and her land goes for sale. And, and a lot of the peasants in the area go and buy pieces of land. And Palm is no different. He goes and buys a piece of land as well. And he buys a small 20-acre piece of land from a local woman and he farms that. And he's a good farmer. He farms it and it grows and produces crops and fruit and and vegetables and everything that they need for the family. But then he thinks, well, this 20 acres really isn't much. I could probably, you know, I could do a lot more. And so then he hears about some land in a place called Volga. And he, so he sells his 20 acres and he, and he takes the money and he goes to Volga. And in Volga, he, he gets more land. In fact, he's got nearly 100 acres. But not only that, he's so productive, he actually rents more land from a communal um, land that, that a lot of people farm, and he pays rent so that he can farm in this communal land because he's so productive. It ends up um, with, with many, many more acres, and he's a good farmer. So it produces fruit, it produces crops. But he gets tired of paying rent. doesn't want to pay rent. doesn't think he should have to pay rent. And so he wants more land. So one day a guy comes through town and tells him about some land further away from him. And uh, he tells him about this land that's controlled by a group of people called the Bashkers, kind of native people. And he says this land controlled by the Bashkers. He said, but, but they, 
They just give it away cheap. So, you know, this guy's telling them, I went there and gave them some clothing and some gifts and small amounts of money, and the chief gave me this huge tract of land. So Palm starts thinking, well, that's, that sounds incredible. I could have my own huge, big tract of land, and that would be it. That's all I need. And so he picks up his family, sells his land, and he picks up his family, and he goes out to the Baskers, and he sees this beautiful land, and he talks to the people, and he gives them gifts, and he brings money, and, and they're open to, to him, and they receive the gifts, and the chief's there. And he tells the chief, I'd like to, I'd like to buy some land from you. You know, and I want it deeded to me, and I want, you know, you know are you willing? And the chief, they, they, they consult each other, and they say, yeah, we're willing, we're willing to sell you land. We'll give it to you. We'll deed it to you. And uh, he says, okay, well, how much is it? And the chief says, it's 1,000 rubles a day. And Palm says, well, I, I don't understand. What, what do you mean 1,000 rubles a day? I don't, I don't understand what you're, what you're saying. He says, 1,000 rubles for one day. And here's how it works. Beginning of the day, you place 1,000 rubles. And at sunrise, you start walking. And you walk. And you take a shovel with you. And you walk the perimeter of the land that you want. And you dig holes along the way to mark the territory. You dig bigger holes at the corners to mark where you're kind of making a corner. And we'll know that. And then we'll go by afterwards with a plow and kind of connect the dots of your land. And all the land that you can encircle in a single day will be yours. You'll own that. Here's the only catch. You've got to make it back to the same spot you started from before sundown. Thousand rubles for a day. Whatever you can encircle in one day, you can own. Palm loves this deal. He says, absolutely, let's do it. So he goes to sleep that night, and he's thinking he can't even sleep. He's thinking about it. He figures out that night in his head, he thinks he can circle 35 miles in one day. And he thinks, I, I can do this. You know, I can get this land. I can probably do 35 miles in a day. So they get up early the next morning. The chief puts his hat down, and Palm puts 1,000 rubles on that hat, and he sets out walking. And he starts walking. And he starts out at a, a good pace. He, doesn't, he knows he's got the whole day to go, and, and Dig starts digging holes along the way. And he, he's got his mind set on a certain direction, but then he sees this piece of land, and he thought, well, I've got to have that piece of land. So he sets out a little bit wider, he goes out a little bit further, and he sees more land. He says, well, that's such a beautiful piece of land. I'm going to regret it later if I don't have that piece of land. And he sets out, makes his circle a little bit bigger, and he goes further out, and he thinks, well, I'm going to regret it later if I don't have this as a part of my land. You know, it's a short-term pain right now for this long-term gain. And he sets out, and he goes out further, and he encircles this huge piece. Then he realizes he's so far away, and the sun's starting to go down. i got to get back. He knows he's got to get back. So he takes off his outer coat. He's sweating. He's, he's moving faster. His, his body is having trouble keeping up, but he thinks, no, you know, if I just put up with this short-term pain in the long term, it'll be worth it. So he starts heading back. He's digging holes along the way. He's sweating. He's, his, his strength is giving out, but he's going. But then he sees the sun set behind him, and he hasn't made it back. But then he looks before him, and he sees the chief 
and all the people at the starting point where he started, and they're up on a hill, and they're cheering for him to come on in because on the hill, the sun hasn't set yet. He's down in a valley, and he realizes, I'm down in a valley. They can still see the sun. If I can get to them before the sun sets, I'll still make it. So then he makes this last-ditch extra effort, and he uses all his strength and all his effort, and he runs up the hill, and he falls just as the sun sets right at the chief's hats and hits the ground right back where he started from just as the sun sets. And blood starts dripping from his mouth. And this friend who is with him realizes he's died that day. And the end of the story, Tolstoy writes this in this story titled, How How Much Land Does a Man Need? Tolstoy ends with this line. Turns out six feet from his head to his toes is all the land a man needs. See, here's the point. Palm built his kingdom, but his kingdom had one major problem. No matter how big of a kingdom he built, when he died, his kingdom died with him. And here's the thing with Herod and with you and with me. We are tempted to build our own kingdoms. But the truth is, we often have a short-term perspective. The reality is our kingdoms are for now and not forever. And the difference with Jesus is his kingdom is forever. Jesus' kingdom will never end. Yes, he came as a baby, but he died as a savior. He'll return as a conquering hero and will reign forevermore. And if you're going to choose a king to follow, then choose a king who reigns forever. If you're going to choose someone to be king of your life, then don't choose a kingdom that ends when you die. Choose to be part of the kingdom that goes on long after you die. If the Magi came today, here, Maybe they might ask, we are looking for the baby that was born King of Rick. (laughs) Or King of Avon. Or King of Annette. King of Mary. King of Vera. And then we might say, wait a minute. That's my job. I'm the King of Rick. I'm the King in my kingdom. But we're looking for the one that's truly born as the king of your life. We were tempted to think that I'm in control of my life. But you're building a kingdom that will end. Trust the king that reigns forever, not the one that reigns for now. And when you choose to give authority of your life over to Jesus Christ, you don't lose, you gain. You gain salvation. You gain his grace. You gain strength through his spirit. And you gain an allegiance and an alignment with the king who reigns forevermore. So this Christmas, will you make him king if you've not done that already? All of us have been given the choice by God who will reign in our lives. All of us are tempted to put ourselves in that position. But that game ends on the day we die. But if you will align yourself with Christ then you will reign with him in his kingdom and be a part of it forever.
And so that's why Herod is so threatened by this baby boy because he knew that he wasn't just a newborn. He was the newborn king. And that's why we, when we come to this manger scene, I pray and I hope you don't see just a little cute representative of a baby in a manger, but you and I understand this is the incarnate deity. This is the Godhead in human form. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if he's king, then he reigns over his kingdom. And if he's king of my life, then that makes demands upon me and how I will live. It's true, the old cliche, if he's not king of all, then he's not king at all. And it's true in your life and in mine. If we're comfortable with just putting him in a corner, letting him stay there, then he's not really king of our life. And so as we close out our service this morning and pray, I ask you to consider, if you're here and you've never made Jesus the king of your life, I'd ask you to at least consider, is the reason you have never given your life over to Jesus because you are afraid to give over control of your kingdom. And if that's true, I would just ask you to explore your heart this morning and recognize the end of that scenario. That when your trust is in you in this world, then your trust is in you in the next world as well. But when you put your trust in Jesus Christ that it's not only for here and for now, it's also even after you die and your trust is in him to take care of you and watch over you. And if you've never done that this morning, I can think of no better time than Christmas of 2015 than to put your trust not in a little baby, but in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. But maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for many years. Then I'd ask you this question, is there any place in your life where the king is not reigning? Is there any place in your heart that you have maintained control rather than giving it over to Jesus? Is there any place in your heart that you've held back as a part of your kingdom? Anything where you know what Jesus would want you to do. You know how Jesus would want you to love you know what Jesus would want you to say. You know what Jesus would have you do. And yet you hold it back because you want to control your kingdom. Will you trust him? Will you trust that he's a good king, that he's loving, and that he can be trusted to rule over your world even as he does over his world? Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you this morning for the truth that Wesley wrote about, that you are the new, that on that day there was a newborn king that had come. Didn't have to wait to come into your kingdom. You were already king from eternity, from ancient days. You were already king. But I thank you that for some reason, your love compelled you to step into our world and to become the incarnate deity to become the Godhead veiled in flesh. And for some reason, you lowered yourself to come and walk among us. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you that you humbled yourself enough to set all, some of your glory aside to walk this earth among us and to die for us. Lord, forgive us. 
for the triteness that we often treat that, for the trivial ways that we think we can put you in a scene on our mantles. Father, I pray that this morning you would give us a greater picture of what it means that Christ is King and Lord. King, not only over this world and your kingdom, but this morning that we would make sure that you are King over our world, that we trust you with our lives and with everything that's precious to us. Father, I pray for every man and woman in here, Lord, that you would bring us to that place of humility that we would be so in love with you that we would gladly give anything we have over to you as king of our lives, Lord, because we can trust you with it in Christ's name. Amen.